and welcome to the ninth episode mm. of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. I'm Christian Kerr and I'm Vicky Rayleigh and we are talking to you from Edinburgh's South Side, home not only to the offices of our sponsor Burnham Limited but also to the hero of this month's book, Detective John Rebus. Mm. Yes, in this episode we will be talking Ian Rankin's Black and Blue, the novel that propelled Ian Rankin and John Rebus onto the bestseller list. Yes, and September is really sort of associated with crime writing in Scotland because we had the Festival Bloody Scotland um, earlier on this month um, and congratulations to Denise Mina for winning the McIlvany Prize. And we've also got a little treat for you. Later on, we'll have a reading from Denzel Merrick's One Last Dram Before Midnight, his new short story collection. Now, if you don't know Denzel Merrick yet... Well, shame on you. <laughs> he is our rising crime fiction star here at Polygon and he has been writing um, the DCI daily series for us for the last few years. Um, he's on book five now, Well of the Winds, which was just released earlier this year. And um, for, but, but for Christmas, he's um, releasing a short story collection of DCI Daily short stories. So we'll hear about that later on. 2017 sees the 30th anniversary of Rebus's incarnation in Rankin's Knots and Crosses. Yeah. Ian Rankin was celebrated at Bloody Scotland alongside Val McDermott, who also celebrates the 30th anniversary of her first novel. I can't believe novel. that. Isn't that amazing? I know. Um, so together they were celebrated as the king and queen of Scottish <laughs> crime in the Grand Hall at Stirling Castle. Well done to them both. Yeah. <laughs> I doff my cap to you. <laughs> so 30 years and there's been 21 Rebus novels in those 30 years. Um, but Rankin, you know, he's not just been all about Rebus. He's also written espionage thrillers, other crime novels with other detectives, short stories, plays, graphic novels. Um, but Rebus has been the constant in those 30 years. And um, even though, you know, two different actors have played him on screen... Um, it's a mainstay of reviews and articles to remark on the possibility that he is Rankin's alter ego. <laughs> Which is funny because even though they're, you know, I've watched both Ken Stott and John Hanna be Rebus, yeah. when I'm reading. Do you see Ian Rankin's face? I see Ian Rankin! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's he, really funny. He is Rebus, he's running around getting beat yeah. up and all that kind of thing. That's great. <laughs> So to talk about the real Ian Rankin, though... Well, yes. <laughs> Cross off the differences. Um, Ian Rankin was born in Cardin Dan in Fife in 1960. Yes. Cardin Dan is a former mining town just outside Kirkcaldy in central Fife. And though Rebus was also born in Fife, he's a good 10 to 15 years older than Rankin, yeah. um, which allows his adult life to straddle the industrial and post-industrial periods mm. a bit more um, clearly. Uh, it seems to me that they might have remarkably similar tastes in music, <laughs> Rankin and Rebus, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. Um, I must say that I'm a bit disappoint disappointed that Ian Rankin's father wasn't a stage hypnotist <laughs> like Rebus is, which is just this kind of amazing theatrical touch yeah. in Knots and Crosses. Um, but while Rebus escaped, escaped his home a sort of, and, a, and an unhappy home life to join the army at age 15, Ian Rankin left Beef High, which is where the origin of his Twitter handle, ah, yeah. um, and went off to study literature at Edinburgh University. 
Yeah. Um, he graduated and then uh, went on to do a PhD programme in Edinburgh. Um, but while he was doing this PhD on uh, Muriel Spark, he also began to write his own fiction. And he published his first novel, The Flood, with Polygon. Us. us. I know. <laughs> in a former incarnation. Um, which makes me wonder... Who's did, got the rights to that? I think well, he bought them back. Did Polygon see the f- knots and crosses then and rejected it because Maybe. it was because it was it was released um, in by, by Bodley Head, yeah. yeah. And you just think, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Although Ian Rankin himself is, I think, quick to say that uh, he had a public an editor who rejected the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> See, it um, happens to the best of them. He, it was at this point at which the editor was rejecting the title, Standing in Another Man's Grave, as being too long. Right. And Ian Rankin was very pleased to point out that that's exactly <laughs> the same number of characters as the girl with the dragon tattoo. Ah, right, so okay. <laughs> these things just go round and round and round in publishing. Mistakes will always be made. Yep. We're only human. And it's just as well there's someone there to pick up the pieces. <laughs> um, so, it, and it was while he uh, signed his first ever book contract that he wrote in his diary, It's Happened, an idea for a novel, crime thriller, which started as one situation and has blossomed into a whole plot. So... And he kind of went away and started writing Rebus. Yeah, right like, away. on his way back yeah. from the Polygon office. <laughs> and I kind of imagine him having this thought as he's walking across the meadows from his flat in Arden Street. Yeah. Like, to the Polygon offices. I know. And, like, that journey happens all the time in Rebus, because <laughs> Rebus lives in Arden Street, so yeah. there's another similarity. Um, but, you know, he says... The idea has blossomed, right? All oh, right, it's blossomed okay. into whole. And like you know, in March, this was in March, nineteen eighty-five, and like the meadows are full of cherry Ch- blossom. Yeah, you're and, right. You know, it's all very poetic. <laughs> That's not the setting of a gritty no incident that kicked it kicked <laughs> off Rebus's career in Edinburgh's underbelly. Yeah. So but. knots and crosses came out in nineteen eighty-seven, the first one. And it came out to absolutely no fanfare whatsoever, as Rankin says himself. And it wasn't until the eighth book in the series, the one that we're going to talk about, Black and Blue, that actually the series did take off in a way that we now... Everybody knows who Rebus is. He's become... Across the world. Yeah, Yeah. an icon. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so we're talking about Black and Blue because it's pivotal in Rankin's career. And as he as he said himself, it moved him from being a, a mid-list author. Mm. You know, he'd been writing for ten years, yeah. writing novels for ten years. But he moved he moved it propelled him from being a mid-list mid-list author into the extremely rarefied air of the stratosphere. Yeah, and I was just re- I was reading about um, David Bowie uh, in in my holidays as well, reading the Paul Morley book about him, and the sheer length of time that, you know, Bowie was trying so hard to make it, make it, make it throughout the whole 60s, and yet Ziggy didn't, you know, really take off until 1972. Just the luxury of having 10 years to write a series of novels and be allowed to develop in that way, like David Bowie with, you know, until he reaches Ziggy. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of hard work and patience and refining your craft. Yeah, and and I think you need that. You need that, and it's a shame that that 
seems an uncommon way to build a career now, both in music yeah. and in, in, in books. I yeah. think I think that's a shame. Because um, Ian Rankin has often referred to it as like serving his apprenticeship. Yeah, and of course you should. It's, as, it's a craft like any other. You've got mm. to... F- you know, work those muscles. You're you're not Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Universe, with your first novel. You're still, you know, Nine Stone Weakling. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's interesting, actually, they talk about tennis in this regard now as champions are ageing. So, you yeah, know, yeah, like yeah. most people who win, most men who win Grand Slams, but even women too, you know, are doing yeah. it deep into their 30s. And the younger generation are not breaking through because they're not strong enough. And it just makes you... Worry. Like physically strong enough, I know. not morally strong enough. <laughs> it just makes you worry that we are going to lose out on potential Ziggy Stardusts and potential Ian Rankins because publishers are less inclined to... Yeah, take the slow food approach. Yeah, yeah. He writes of their, about there being a sense of everyone being aware that this was going to be a breakthrough. Mm. Yeah. That, like, the publisher put more money towards publicity and did some advertising and it really did sort of make a splash. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And garnered a whole load of prizes. Yeah. It won the Crime Writers Association Golden Dagger Mm -hmm. Award, which is the highest honour in crime writing. writing. Um, And um, after that, after after publication in 1997... Um, it found its way onto the higher English syllabus. Mm. <laughs> Which is amazing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> for for a contemporary novel to, uh, you know, reach that that um, that massive a space in our consciousness. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's um, a line of argument that, like, something becomes canonical as soon as it starts to be taught. Yeah. So, there you there go. There we go. <laughs> um, but this was... Well, both of us, I think, are uh, our first yes. time. I know we're. I know we're supposed to be proper Edinburghers here, and we have. We both have to admit that neither of us had read Ian Rankin until we decided to do him. Until this month. <laughs> until this month. So it has I, been Ian Rankin month. It really has. I. I I've read. I, I read. Um, I read the first one, Knots uh, uh, and Crosses, and then Hide and Seek, and then I went on to Black Book. And then into black and blue because I wanted to chart the progress towards black and blue to yeah. see, you know, h- how much he was um, making a progression, and you absolutely do see it. And 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 by the time you get to black and blue, um, it was just as soon as I started reading it, it was like it was like a big sigh, like when you first get into a warm bath or something like yeah. that. It was just. Um, just like oh here we go I'm in the hands of somebody that that has an more of an idea of what what he's doing he is so much less self-conscious in black and blue than he is in the previous books where you get the impression that he's still finding his feet as a crime writer and as somebody who's aware that he's within a genre that's quite hard and masculine and and all that kind of thing whereas you kind of see him sort of relax and have a little bit of fun yeah. as to what not only crime writing can be but what fiction can be and characterization and and what a crime book can be about and how it can be written and so yeah and there's a sort of much greater expansiveness as yeah. well I mean, it's a much longer book oh yeah yeah <laughs> but, but, but not- everything is sort of more deft and balanced it's like mm. the proportions are graceful yeah like w- one of my favorite kind of books 
I do ha- have a, a huge liking for big baggy novels that have got lots of characters and yeah. different strands and maybe are intergenerational and, and, and have something to say. You know, I think Americans are really good at writing these kinds mm-hmm. of books. You know, like my favourite... So a couple of my favourite books are maybe like, uh, you know, Chabon's Cavalier and Clay or Carter Beats the Devil. These big sort of quite big in scope, but rollicking as well, yeah. rollicking good reads. And that's exactly what I felt when I was reading Black and Blue as well. And so I, I completely ripped through it and I was just... Because sometimes you just want a good story, well told, and the one that just keeps you turning the pages and gives you like gasping moments and all that kind of thing yeah 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 well without further ado uh (laughs) let's just uh jump into this novel like most of the rebus novels there are many different and overlapping cases on the go in Mm. black and blue yeah and i spent my time thinking a little bit thinking you know actually some people might say that the coincidence of all of these plots like some people could say this is really unrealistic or like this is too baroque but Knowing some police officers quite well, <laughs> you know, you get, you do realise that when somebody has a career in a city as small as Edinburgh, mm. even if they're moving around different police stations, mm-hmm. it's all the same scene. Yeah. And um, you build up this, just this knowledge yeah. of the characters. Yeah, to me it was, it was really highlighting the, the maverick... Um, the maverick mindset of Rebus, you know, all the other police people, and particularly the ones above them, were all like, these are separate cases, you concentrate on this. You, It was only Rebus, really, that knew, had an inkling right from the start that all these cases would interconnect. Right. And you as the reader yeah. is a sort of sitting there wondering, how do they interconnect? I know they should, I know, but maybe and, there are some red herrings. <laughs> and because you, you're, you've you've come up with Rebus with the previous books, uh, you already uh, trust him that his instincts are right. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Of course, one of the things that is so important that having read the first one and then this one, the eighth, is that the first novel has to draw on Rebus's own personal backstory mm, yeah. rather than, like, the forces' backstory yeah. or the backstory of cold cases or Edinburgh's backstory because yeah. you're just entering the world. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know, the first the first season of 24 where it's all about <laughs> his daughter, right. you know, and it's like the family's <laughs> in danger and... You know, the after that first season where it's the disaster has happened to the protagonist, mm. you can't repeat that again and again because it would yeah. be the world's unluckiest family. Yeah. So you have to broaden the scope and quite a lot of the... That's a sort of test, a moment where it's like, is someone going to be able to do that? Mm. Um, and I think we both agree that yeah. that is very well done mm. in this. So... There are many and different overlapping cases on the go in black and blue. I know. Um, so we start off with seemingly a simple-ish murder. <laughs> Just, you know, a bit of a, a, a criminal adventure gone a little bit wrong where this man has been <laughs> taken to a dilapidated house in Nidri and escapes by jumping out a window and impaling himself on some railings. Yeah. And then we have something going on in, in Rebus's life where an old case from his past has come back to haunt him because a man who was put in jail for a crime that Rebus investigated as a young, you know, detective. Whippersnapper. Yeah. He has now... He's protested his innocence 
his whole life, but and he's killed himself. Yeah. And so there's this um, TV, TV crew. <laughs> the justice programme. Yeah. Running around trying to um, goad Rebus into confessing that, you know, yes, the man is innocent or not, as the case yeah. may be. Playing out along, on top of these two things, mm. is a cold case. A, a killer that was probably never caught and a series of what seemed to be copycat murders. Yeah. So somebody who the tabloids have christened Johnny Bible <laughs> is killing women in Edinburgh, Glasgow and Aberdeen. Yeah. And there are similarities mm. between this and some real life famous Murders. Murders that happened in Glasgow in the 1960s. 60s, which is the, the famous Bible John case. He's very much like a sort of Yorkshire Ripper for yeah. Glasgow in the 60s kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, so Rebus has all these things going on in his head, taking him to Glasgow, taking him to Aberdeen, taking him to all the different parts of Edinburgh. Right. And he knows they're all connected. And so he renegotiate how he finds out how they are connected along with Rebus, yeah. while he's also trying to, you know, <laughs> get away from his superiors who, who are investigating him, the TV show that's investigating him, and uh, all manner of people that are just trying to stop him finding, yeah. out, finding out the truth. Yeah. We talked a little bit about why we think that this might have been an, a novel sufficiently accomplished to break through mm. as it were to be the breakthrough novel yeah but what is it that you would pick out about it well i think it is, it's i don't think it's just the book as well i think it's timing too because if you think about it um 1997 we were still in Britpop phrase, yeah, where you know it was it was just after Trainspotting, just after Braveheart, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, Cool there Caledonia was, as well as Cool, cool Britannia was a thing, and particularly with the musical element in Rankin's writing, uh-huh. he could easily slot into that um, that mm-hmm. sort of Cool Britannia, yeah. Cool Caledonia okay. zeitgeist. So I think there's a little element of he was the right author to promote at that time, yeah. as well as the book was a, re- a big step up right, right, right. into what he'd done previously. So I guess in 1997 he was, That's th- just a he hunch was 37, yeah. which means still quite young. Yeah, you know, because there was that, that crossing over all the time in, ni- in the 90s with culture and and the different mediums you know Irvin Welsh and film and soundtrack and 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 I think I think these books and Ian Rankin sat alongside that that. very well yeah well certainly and he's continued to 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 To, move within oh books and music and yeah yeah cultural space um the music so many of the novels their titles are songs yeah uh, black and blue You'll being see, no exception I'm a, I'm a Stones fan but I'm kind of like 1972 <laughs> Excel in Main Street is like one of the, 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 the last good things that they did so I, I don't know the album Black and Blue very well uh, so Black and Blue is the Rolling Stones but Black and Blue is the Black Black Oil mm. up in Aberdeen and the Blue Thin Blue Line yes and it's also Black and Blue because there are quite a few beatings yes there book. is a lot of <laughs> fisticuffs <laughs> <laughs> I 
I know. I'm, I mean, I keep I, all the way through it. I was like, he's getting on a bit as Rebus, but then I kept remembering that he was from the from the SAS. So I was like, all yeah, right, he's, uh, he's hard as nails. You can take this. Yeah. <laughs> but there's part of me that's like, Jesus, how can he like carry on <laughs> hunting these criminals when he's he's been beaten to a pulp like practically every day? Well, and also the sheer amount that he's drinking as well. Yeah, is really impressive. <laughs> don't know if impressive is the word as in <laughs> terrifying and um, one of the lovely strands throughout the book as well is it's like it, it becomes like a rebus internal monologue where he's think he's going along doing his thing and it just makes him think of a song and yeah. so he just he just says oh this song and it's and it's usually a song that's to do with something that's happened around him because you know working with me every day that you can say something and I'll just be like and I'll turn it into a lyric of a song and start singing the song and it was nice to see a, a fictional character do exactly the same thing in the book <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I was like, see? It's not just me that does that kind of thing. One of the things that is interesting about um, Rebus's story mm-hmm. in comparison to, for instance, Knots and Crosses, mm-hmm. is that his personal life or whatever's going on with him is mostly about professional conundrums. Yeah. It's like his ex wife and his daughter are pretty. In the background. In the back, much they in they the lurk, but, um, yeah. Yeah, and then the relationship with Jill Templer yeah. um, is just sort of in a caring yeah. place, you know? Like, with distance a, yeah. and with what a, it's, it's, it's kind of feels like it's trying to be a sort of friends with benefits yeah. <laughs> kind of Although, relationship. I'm not sure there are any benefits. I know, they don't, they're, they're, they don't get on. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but, and his religious um, beliefs mm. fade more as the books carry on as well. Yeah. But he's still, I mean, he's still very much a sort of self-flagellating person yes. and ridden with but guilt he, and that's shame right. and things but he, he he's not it's so le- it's somewhat less obviously yeah, yeah uh-huh. guilt um and also uh in that regard i mean the bible stuff is displaced yeah. onto the criminals yeah in this one mm-hmm. what so, did you think of um the fact that bible john actually appears in the novel I thought it was great. Yeah. It was a moment where I definitely sat up. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, like, I thought he would just be a figure in the background that Rebus yeah. is thinking about all the way through it. So that scene where it starts actually being narrated from yeah. Bible John's point of view. Yeah, and it's just like, Bible John. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great moment. Yeah, that was a no. Yeah, no, that, I really, I really enjoyed that element to it. He's he's there, but there's a scene that in the scene when he and Rebus meet. Yeah, unknowingly, you don't don't know that it's him because you're seeing it from Rebus's point of view. Yeah, and then you see it from his point of view. That was the that was the bit where I gasped out loud in total. Yeah, I was like, oh, well done, Rankin. Well done. You see, when um, when Rebus goes to Aberdeen, Mm -hmm. you just have this sense that everyone is crooked. Yeah. I guess I was a teenager in the 90s. Yeah. Didn't really know that Aberdeen had this kind of glitzy, like the, almost the, Vegasy kind yes. of. It was more. It was about displaying of wealth rather than. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. There was something quite tacky and, and tasteless about the wealth generated. 
Right. And or so, that's how it's written yeah. anyway. And so you you get up there and it's like, is Aberdeen the Wild West? <laughs> yeah. The police force is still the police force. Yeah. Like, he gets put up in this fancy hotel, but the oil liaison officer's not there. Yeah. And, you know, you wonder if the cops are crooked. So you've got organised crime. And then the real criminals, who, of course, are the industrialists. <laughs> but, yeah, they're interested in Scotland in, uh, you, you know, in for many reasons. It's not mm. just because of the oil, but, you know, the oil is political. Yeah, it was weird to read of the oil baron character now that Trump is president. Yes. And Trump with his connection to Scotland. Scotland and all that kind of thing. And we were just like... Uncanny. And this is the first novel that takes Rebus away from Edinburgh. Right. And so, and, and in doing so, even though he's got his, you know, sidekick who's not exactly a voluntary Jack sidekick. Morton. No, Jack yeah. Morton. I love that relationship. I know. In fact, it's kind of a buddy comedy. Yeah. They're, like, painting walls together. Yeah. And but, then, but in this book, Black and getting Blue... Getting sober. The, his protégés are very much in the background of, yes. um, of, of this book. So Siobhan's not in it as much. Right, and he basically only speaks to Siobhan... On the phone. On the phone. Yeah. Yeah. And then Brian as well, who is very much, like, this sort of quite a tragic figure in yeah. this book um definitely he's really peripheral yeah de- and definitely so different from the bright young thing that you're introduced to in uh knots and crosses mm-hmm. it's quite a sad trajectory yeah. from knots and crosses to how he is in black and blue yeah and of um, course he leaves the force at the end and you just have this sense that i mean he chooses to do what rebus didn't do right yeah. which is to choose life for his papers <laughs> in very good um and to repair his marriage and settle into domesticity you don't get i don't get the sense that there's too much melancholy in rebus in this book because the act it is just so So jam-packed with action and it propels itself along it's like he's in the thick of all of this and he's Mm. having to react you know he's going up and down to Aberdeen to get away from all these people who are really out to get him. Yeah, I mean... And he's precarious. I know, I'm quite surprised at how much he doesn't crack up in yeah. this book. Yeah, well, and in fact, the more the pressure, you know, yeah. um, builds on him, the 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 so more sober he becomes. Yeah. Right? I mean, when I things know, are getting really bad, he's yeah. just like, okay, no more. And, he, you know, you can sort of tell that, like, the next ten novels, <laughs> he's not going to be a teetotaler. No. <laughs> I know. And see, this is the thing. We're now talking about Rebus, and we're talking about Black and Blue, and we've only read up to Black and Blue. Yeah. So there could be listeners who, like who know what happened subsequently from Black and Blue. I imagine they've probably got a better idea. I know, and they're like, oh, this is what's going to happen to Brian and Siobhan and and Rebus, and you just don't know yet. Yeah. (laughs) I read enough reviews to know that some bad things happen to some people we really like. Oh, no! But I won't say. Okay. I went back and looked at all the reviews of Rebus and the TLS because right. their archive is wonderfully searchable from 1995 onwards. Wow. Yeah. This was the first um, one that they had reviewed, Black and Blue. Ah, right, okay. And Liam McAvaney wrote what seemed to be a glowing, it was a, quite a glowing review, you mm. know, it was just like ambition and scope and actually almost all the reviews of Black and Blue talk about that, how yeah. it's an expansion of ambition and scope. But at the end... 
he says that everything is that the the sort of plot is so elaborate mm-hmm. um, that he doesn't do he does that in this one Rankin is not getting into the nitty gritty of like Edinburgh life or social problems oh, or anything right, like okay. that and he says really it's almost too slick oh. um, and it's just a slick procedural it doesn't interrogate Scottish life enough and he says well, he says in the same way as The Falls which was the previous novel oh, or right, the okay. two before maybe which had been about sectarianism oh. and it is interesting that so instead of talking about poverty or immigration or yeah sectarianism suddenly this international oil scene mm. is seen as not seen as more of a rodeo or or, or something See, i think you know? that actually displays liam McIlvanny's um notion that scotland happens in glasgow Yes, and that is fascinating also. Because, yeah. you know, if he prefers the one about sectarianism, then mm-hmm. that means that he thinks that that's Scotland's premier issue. Yeah. Whereas <clears throat> by taking this book into Aberdeen and talking about the international oil industry yeah. and, and different... It's like a globalised... Yeah, um, it's a gl- and, and you know these American these corrupt yeah. Americans running the the club and and people smelling money so coming over here yeah. and and all that kind of thing and the and and so therefore that lack of homegrown culture and because it is all about money yeah. and 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 people that is that and, is absolutely and actually one of the things that is interesting is that um the guy that died mitchison mm. he's an orphan yeah and he's rootless that's yeah. the point he is kind of a nobody yeah. he's this like that's one of the jobs that rebus has mm-hmm. in um, black and blue is to try and piece together like this crime is really going to be really hard to solve because yeah. it's hard to know anything about him somebody who has absolutely no ties to anything and yeah. has a job that allows him to not have right and to have a half life right because you spend two weeks out on the rig in that culture Mm. and then you come back and you're a sort of ghost and you can do whatever you want because you'll be going back to the rig i mean that it's really i think it's really interesting and maybe that's that that's a sort of pivotal moment you know Mm. because uh in in that the the focus is actually in some ways less parochial Mm. um more outward looking Mm. and um that you know scotland and certain uh scotland is it's Scotland in a global world. And, and, and then later, in 2006, uh, he writes a book about... one. The Rebus story is about the G8 at Glen Eagles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, and yeah. it starts to become more and more about globalisation. I mean, mm-hmm. you could certainly cheese out like, the development of globalisation through mm-hmm. this series. I know. And that, that's a, com- a complete total interrogation of how culture changes and how yeah. a place changes. Yeah. And- all that kind um, of thing. And so funny to <clears throat> remark on, like, Glasgow's, Glasgow centricity <laughs> yeah. um, in Scottish crime. Because, West Coast um, bias. Um, Kevin McKenna wrote a great, great column. Oh, really? Um, a couple of years ago. and uh, But he says, you know, there's nothing I like more than Inspector Rebus. Those of us on the West Coast have just been waiting for it to be revealed, in fact, that he's a Glaswegian because he's always felt like one of us. <laughs> Rather than a fifer who lives in Shortbread City. Yeah. 
I recommend to everyone Colin Waters's piece in the Scottish Review of Books mm-hmm. about Rebus at 30, which All was right. just in the August issue. And he really sort of says, you know, we need to move away from just the binary yeah. nature of discussion. And yeah. we talked about this with Kevin as well. Yeah. Um, last week when we were talking about Jekyll and Hyde and uh, Stevenson Mm -hmm. and um, there's like a real plurality (laughs) of issues and identity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah and I think everyone's more aware of that it doesn't make it any easier to pin down Mm. what they are yeah you know Though, to be fair to Liam McIlvany he was writing that in 2000 no in 1997 yeah so you know yeah you know that where where we were just on the, and also when Scotland was on the cusp of a massive change as well. Yeah, you this know, is pre. I know this is just as we were about to vote on getting a parliament. parliament. Yeah. So Scotland in the nineties is. Yeah. Yeah. Ancient history. Mm. And yet, we were saying that this one's it felt modern as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, the more things change, the more they say the same. (laughs) To talk about, to put something in an unhelpful binary. (laughs) And now we come to um, our special reading um, for this month's podcast. We thought we'd do something different this time. Um, instead of interviewing Denzel, we thought we'd let his work do the talking. So today we have a reading of uh, one of the stories in his collection, One Last Dram Before Midnight. Um, the story is 213, and it's a Constable James Daly story, not a DCI Daly story, because this is actually a prequel um, to the, the DCI Daily series and 213 is set in Glasgow in 1986 and it's the very first murder investigation that Daly finds himself in as a green uh, graduate from the Tully Allen Police School. Absolutely, he's in uniform. Yeah. He's looking very trim in his uniform yes. as well. he's younger, he's thinner. <laughs> he's admiring himself in the... Uh... <laughs> Shop windows. Yeah. <laughs> but he but and he is also quite unsure of himself in a way that he isn't in the series. So it's quite nice to see his journey from beginner detective to what we see now in the series. Absolutely. Yeah. And the um yeah, a number of his later traits are sort of um, embryonic yeah, in uh-huh. this. And it's really fun to, always Spot. fun to read a, pre- a prequel. Yeah. Origin story. Yeah. He's not married in this one. No, but he does meet his forthcoming lady wife. And so we're introduced to um, many of the characters that go on to be quite, um, you know... Significant. Signi- yeah, significant in the, in the, in the series later on. Including one very important one. Yeah, including fan favourite DS Scott. We we see the meeting point of Daly and Scott there. The start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> yeah. The um, story is read by Callum Bannerman, who is a loved and trusted colleague here at Berlin, but who's also a performance poet in his own right. So this is his spin on Denzel Merrick's 213 from One Last Dram Before Midnight. Chapter 1. Glasgow, March... 1986. Police Constable Jim Daly smiled as he caught sight of his reflection in the window of the expensive clothing store. He had just finished his second stint at Tully Allen, the Scottish Police Training College, 
and his trim physique was testament to the rigorous fitness regime there. He walked on, then paused for a few moments, gazing at the display in Curry's window. The latest VHS recorder took pride of place beside a Sony Hi-Fi system. He grinned. His sergeant, John Donald, had just spent a small fortune on a state-of-the-art Betamax unit, which already appeared to be obsolete. Serves him right, thought Daly, and moved on. It was just after 5am, as he scanned the shops and offices across the street. He passed his gloved hand over the plate-glass storefronts on his right. This way, he could check both sides of the road at the same time, ensuring that if any break-ins had occurred during the night shift, they wouldn't go undiscovered. It was called plate-glass patrol, and his colleagues across Glasgow city centre were following the same routine. When he'd first joined Strathclyde Police and embarked upon his basic training, he'd hoped to be sent to some of the more far-flung parts of the force area, the Cowell Peninsula, Ayrshire, even distant Argyle with its islands and county towns had been potential postings. But here he was in the city he'd grown up in, plodding down Socky Hall Street in the grey dawn of a March morning. He was sanguine about this, though, and now of the opinion that he would learn more from the hard-bitten cops who worked the tough streets of Scotland's largest city than from their despised country cousins. A sudden noise made him stop in his tracks, and he averted his gaze from the shops across the street to the small lane immediately to his right, which ran between two office blocks. Steam was already rising from vents in the building as boilers were fired up in readiness for the arrival of the workforce. The lane was littered with the normal city detritus, fish supper wrappings, empty beer cans, the green glass from a smashed bottle of tonic wine, blobs of white chewing gum now stuck fast to the pavement, and scores of carelessly abandoned cigarette ends. He narrowly avoided standing on a used condom as he made his way up the lane to investigate. There it was again, a cross between a mumble and a song, coming from a large refuse skip at the end of the lane. He took the heavy rubberized torch from the pocket of his flimsy uniform coat and flashed the beam towards the skip. Hey you, ya bastard! came a loud, slurred voice as, from underneath mounds of cardboard and plastic bottles, a figure emerged. The man blinked in the beam of the torch. He was wearing what remained of a beige gabardine coat, torn and filthy, down which straggled a matted beard. His salt-and-pepper hair was long and tangled, almost dreadlocks, but Daly had encountered this man before and knew that the hairstyle was merely the result of being left so long unwashed. Right, dandy, come on, time you had a wee trip up the road, eh? Get you cleaned up and a hot meal inside you, said Daly, holding out his hand to help the man get out of the skip. He tried not to recoil at the stench as the tramp, holding his arm with a vice-like grip, vaulted clumsily onto the pavement, mumbling incoherent curses as he did. Dandy man, said Daly, screwing up his face. You're reeking. What were you drinking last night? The tramp looked at him through sad, bloodshot eyes. Meths, he growled. White sunshine for a cold night. He laughed hoarsely revealing an array of rotting black and yellow teeth. A number of tramps frequented Glasgow city centre, men ruined by drugs and drink, the product of fractured existences. The rumour was that Dandy, ironically named because he was anything but, had once been well-to-do, with a good job and a middle-class life, but had given up when his wife took their rotter and ran off with another man. This, of course, could be true, but was more likely to be one of the many rumours that circulated among the city's finest. Whatever the reason, this unfortunate soul lived on the very periphery of life, in a sense, neither dead nor alive, begging, finding shelter where he could, and spending most of his time anaesthetised from the misery of his existence with cheap wine or industrial-strength alcohol. He was arrested occasionally, not from fear of his being a danger to the public, but merely as a duty of care. 
He would appear in front of a justice of the peace at the district court, be bound over to keep the peace, then a place would be found for him in one of Glasgow's homeless hostels, themselves remnants of the city's notorious Victorian slums. He would eat, get cleaned up and stay sober for a few days, then abscond and the cycle of despair would begin all over again. 213 to Alpha, said Daly, into the mouthpiece of his Motorola radio. Just found Dandy, need the van, over. He gave his position to the crackly voice at the other end and escorted the tramp from the lane and onto the street to await transport back to Stuart Street Police Office. He held a sleeve of the tramp's filthy raincoat firmly, knowing that, despite his physical condition, the man was not beyond making a dash for freedom, if that's what he truly felt about his life on the street. Dandy mumbled something and Daly leaned towards him. What is it? We're just waiting for the van. At least you'll get your breakfast. Dandy turned to look at him with what Daly thought was a smile. It wasn't, though. Before the young policeman could move, Dandy opened his mouth wide, as though about to yawn, then spewed copiously over himself and Daly's dark uniform. PC James Daly, rooted to the spot for a few moments, looked down ruefully at the stinking green liquid that now dripped down his sleeve and lapel. He turned his head away and was sick on the pavement, just as the white Sherpa van drew up at his side. Chapter 2 Daly spent most of the morning trying to rid his uniform of the rancid smell of vomit, but to no avail. By lunchtime he had given up, resolving to leave it at the dry cleaner at the first opportunity. He would have to wear his best uniform tonight. He looked at the clock inside, realising that he would have to get some sleep before going back on the night shift at 11pm. He shared a flat in Paisley's West End, with two other young cops. It was far enough away from where they worked to afford some freedom for a group who hadn't long left their teenage years behind. For Daly, who had never lived anywhere apart from Glasgow, the tough, former cotton manufacturing town seemed almost exotic. Paisley was famed for its rough pubs and its pretty women. It was upon the latter that the young constable mused as he made his way through the rows of shops, houses and high flats of the town end in Glasgow in the early hours of the next morning, his habitual beat. By 2am he was ready for his refreshment break but still had an hour to wait until he could return to the office to eat the sandwiches he'd made before reporting for duty. It was a weekday night, quiet as the grave, with most of the goods of citizens of Glasgow tucked up in bed ahead of another hard day at work. But not all. His radio burst into life. 213, attend 18C Kennedy Path, a Mr Martin reporting a housebreaking, over... Daly acknowledged the call and made his way over to one of the multi-storey flats looming in the orange glow of the streetlights. As he approached the building, he kept his wits about him, scanning the scene before him for someone, anyone, who appeared in the slightest suspicious. There was no one to be seen, though. As he pulled open the heavy door and walked into the property, past walls daubed with the familiar graffiti identifying Glasgow street gangs. He pressed the button for the lift, noting that the plastic arrow pointing up had been burned, most likely by a cigarette lighter, and now a bare bulb was showing through the melted green plastic. He coughed in disgust as he stepped into the lift, which stank of piss. Though consoled himself that at least it was working and he didn't have to walk up 18 flights of stairs. As Daly breathed through his mouth to avoid the stench, the lift juddered to a halt and the doors wheezed open. The door to flat C was brightly painted, and a garden gnome sporting a tiny fishing rod sat incongruously beside a thick hessian welcome mat. Despite the hour, Daly knocked loudly on the door. A glow appeared in the fanlight as someone shuffled along the hall. Mr Martin, said Daly, as an elderly man in a maroon dressing gown opened the door. Constable Daly here, you reported a break-in. 
He studied the front door, puzzled. It bore no signs of forced entry. As though picking up on his thoughts, the man replied, Och, no, no. My house. Didn't land in there. Flat G, he said, pointing round the corner. I heard a commotion about an hour ago. Nothing unusual there, mind you. Nothing unusual? What do you mean? Lassie stays there. Well, young woman, I should say. She has a lot of... friends, he continued with an exaggerated wink. Sorry? You know, men friends, the old man said, looking into Daly's face for confirmation that he was getting the point, but noting that he wasn't. Aye, you're young right enough. She's on the game, he said, almost in a whisper. Folk coming and going all times a day and night. Bloody disgrace, if you ask me. My poor wife's sick it. Mind you, she's a polite enough girl. Always says good morning, that sort of thing, you know. Broken her feathers, hair, I should, shouldn't I wonder. Would break mine and all seen the state of her. The state of her? Skin and bone, son. On the drugs. A strong wind would blow her away. Hell a way to live, if you ask me. The man accompanied daily along the corridor and around the corner to the women's flat. One door stood in splendid isolation in an alcove, facing another which was boarded up and covered in graffiti. No garden gnome here. The door to flat G had been forced open. Bright splintered wood showed through faded red paint where the catch had been levered off, most likely with a jemmy. The brass screws of a Yale lock were scattered across the stone floor of the landing like small gold coins. They've done a number on it right enough, remarked Mr Martin. These bastard drug dealers are no stop at anything to get their dosh. How do you know it was the work of drug dealers, Mr Martin? asked Daly, looking along the dim hallway of the flat. They're up here all the time looking for money, scum of the earth as far as I'm concerned. If I was ten years younger, I'd tell you. He left the sentence unfinished. I want you to go back to your flat, please, sir, if that's okay. I'll come in and take a statement from you in a few minutes. I need to check inside here if you don't mind. As Daly watched the man padding away in his slippers, he radioed in the incident. I'm just going into the flat to take a look. He could hear the controller making a call to his section sergeant. 8 Alpha calls 210, 210. Come in please, Sergeant Donald. There was a pause, then the controller spoke again. 210 attends in about 20 minutes from High Street, 213. As Daly stepped gingerly through the open door and into the hallway, he pictured the look of disgust on his sergeant's face as he was forced to leave a comfortable DOS, a bolt hole from a chilly night where cups of tea could be made and cigarettes smoked, and venture out into the night at the behest of his young charge. But the feeling he had in the pit of his stomach concerned Daly more. He was relatively new to the police, but his instinct for something being wrong was already acute. He edged further into the flat. To his right, he found the kitchen, illuminated by a single bare light bulb at the end of a brown twisted flex. One cracked plate stood in a dish rack and a mug still half full of cold tea sat beside an old kettle. Daly felt his feet sticking to the grimy linoleum, which was stained with dropped food and spilled drink. The whole place smelled of decay. A cupboard door was lying open, but there was nothing inside apart from a single tin of tomato soup. Daly backed out of the room. The next door he came to was closed. He pushed it with his boot and shone his torch inside. The bathroom contained a filthy toilet and a white enamel bath supporting a thick line of black scum. The washhand basin was spattered with what looked like dried blood, and a single syringe lay on a glass shelf, together with a rubber tourniquet. A large beetle skittered across the floor at his feet. There were only two doors left, sitting side by side across from the bathroom. Both were closed. Daly opened the furthest one to find a large cupboard. Again, it was empty, save for an old doll's pram. His sister had had one just like it. He took a deep breath as, with a gloved hand, he opened the last door. He shone his torch around the room. 
A wardrobe with a cracked full-length mirror stood beside a squat chest of drawers. A few clothes were scattered about the floor, mostly underwear. There were no pictures on the walls, no curtains on the window. On a double bed lay the body of a young woman. A large plume of dark red blood was visible on the white sheet beneath her parted legs. Her skirt was scrunched round her thighs. Daly felt his stomach churn as the light from his torch caught her lifeless staring eyes. He reached for his radio. Sergeant Donald looked down at the body. Another bloody junkie, he observed, looking for somewhere to stub out his cigarette. What's its name? Her name is Tracy Green, Sergeant, said Daly sharply. Shouldn't you maybe dispose of that fag outside? The forensic guys won't want to have to eliminate it from the inquiry. As soon as he'd uttered the words, he wished he hadn't. Forensic science was a relatively new discipline in the police force. It represented a great stride forward in the art of detection, but had yet to reveal its full potential. Donald looked at the tall, slim constable. If I need any fucking advice, son, I'll be sure to ask. He stubbed out his cigarette on the windowsill and flicked the butt through the open window, where it spun 18 floors to the ground. In the meantime, shut it. They awaited the arrival of the CID, who would take charge of the investigation, in an uncomfortable silence. Despite the position of the body, it was still too early to say how the young woman had died. Forensics would move her remains to the Glasgow mortuary, where cause of the death would be assessed, though it was not yet obvious to Daly's barely trained eye. You getting a good eyeful, sneered Donald. No, I was just trying to see if I could work out how she died, Daly replied. You stick to shoplifters and parking tickets, son. You don't have to worry about this shit. Probably never have to. A life on the beat for you, I'm guessing. You never know, replied Daly. He wanted to say more, but with only 15 months service behind him, disagreeing with his immediate superior would not make for the best career move. He had to pass his two-year probationary period, and this overweight man with the double chins and the wheeze could still make life very difficult for him. Sergeant John Donald was the kind of policeman they had warned him about in college. He was rude, arrogant and lazy. Daly wondered how he had ever risen to the rank of sergeant. He'd been told that Donald did his best to ingratiate himself with higher-ranking officers when off-duty. The young cop himself had noted how Donald's behaviour changed when anyone with braid turned up. His young, working-class tones would be replaced by an accent altogether more refined. His habitual slouch transformed into a more upright, yet subservient stance. One of the older cops in Daily Shift had discovered that Donald had recently joined an expensive health club of the type frequented by senior officers. No doubt the man they encountered there bore little relation to the uncouth specimen Daly saw before him in the dead girl's bedroom. Donald broke wind loudly, then looked at his watch. Right, bugger all else I can do here. CID will be with you shortly. Try not to fuck it up, son. Don't be interfering with that poor lassie, he said, making an obscene gesture. Daly was relieved to watch him go, but he felt uneasy being left in the company of a corpse. He stared down at the girl's ravaged body. She probably wasn't much older than him, and already her life had reached its end. Daly thought about this predisposition towards melancholy he seemed to have. In the months since he joined up, he'd experienced things most other young men of his age would never witness. All of the vices he confronted on the street seemed to be underpinned by two things, money and death. In an attempt to make sense of this, he'd started reading books by the great philosophers, but he'd soon given up when Nietzsche's theories had left him profoundly depressed. As he stared across the city from the bedroom window, he wondered how many more people's lives were on the brink. All seemed quiet, 
almost serene, but in the many streets below him, under the many roofs of the many buildings he could see, who really knew what was going on? As he gazed down at the city, it was almost as though it was staring back into his soul. He was roused from his melancholy by a disturbance in the hall. The bedroom door opened to reveal a tall, painfully thin man in a crumpled suit and light grey raincoat, accompanied by a young, harassed-looking colleague. Right, what have we got here, son? asked Detective Chief Inspector Ian Burns. Chapter 3 Daly watched as the DCI took in the scene. The young DC took notes as his boss walked around the room, making comment only when he felt it necessary. Burns knelt on the floor and pulled something from under the bed. He held up a plastic bag filled with condoms. Well, I think we can safely say that this poor lassie has been on the game to support her habit. Heroin, no doubt, and possibly this new crack. Do you think she's been murdered by dealers? asked Daly, anxious to contribute something. No, well, not in the traditional way, anyhow. No knife to the heart or baseball bat over the head here, son. I take it you never looked too closely up her skirt. Uh, no, said Daly, hoping he wasn't about to be the victim of yet another crude joke. Well, take a look and tell me what you see. Daly bent down and forced himself to look between the victim's thighs. There was something sticking out from her groin, in the fold between her leg and her genitals. Is that a syringe, sir? Yup. The usual veins collapse in the arm and then the addict's forced to inject the drug anywhere else serviceable. Nice, eh? The question is, has our body just given up or do we have another? Burns gave his DC a knowing look. Another, sir? queried Daly. In the last two weeks, two prostitutes have died from massive doses of heroin. The question till now has been why? Suicide? Aye, possible. We do see that from time to time, but three so close together, well, that's unusual. Also, these poor kids usually live from hit to hit. Why would they save up such a store of the drug just to end it all? The usual pattern would be of an addict doing away with themselves when they couldn't lay their hands on a fix. Paraceum was a lot cheaper than H, said Burns. And look at her lips. Blue. Sure sign of poisoning. What about the blood? asked Daly. Massive hemorrhage caused by the overdose. Seen a crime should be here soon, but I think we have number three. Oh shit, said the DC. Oh shit indeed, DC Scott. Bloody nasty. Oh, aye, well, I wasn't meaning that exactly, sir, he said awkwardly. What then? asked Burns with a frown. Just broken the end of my bloody pencil, sir, said DC Brian Scott. If you pardon my French, he added with a wink at Daly. Thanks to Callum for that reading, and thanks to Denzel Merrick for, for allowing us to. <laughs> yep. Um, and do look out for One Last Round Before Midnight if you need a Christmas present for the crime lover in your life. Yes, because not only do we have prequels and all that kind of thing, there is a Christmas story in there for One Last Round Before Midnight, because crime never stops. Not even for Christmas. Not even for Christmas. Next month. Yes. We will be moving on to John Buchan. Yes, we will be swashing our buckles, <laughs> full, of, full of adventure and daring do. We will be looking at our author, Robert J. Harris, who has just released 
um, a brand new Richard Hanny thriller called The 31 Kings, which is available in all good bookshops now. And it's a really great, loving tribute to the swashbuckling adventures of John Buchan. But we'll be looking something, we'll be looking at one of Buchan's books that is a little bit more philosophical. We'll be looking at John Buchan's last book, Sick Heart River. So we hope you can join us then. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Bye.